right, just stop where you are. We'll pray and we'll get started. We can go without those things. Let's pray and then we'll get going here. Let us pray. Lord Christ, we ask you to spread our table with your mercy. And may you bless with your gentle hands the good things you have given us. We know that whatever we have comes from your lavish heart. For all that is good comes from you. Thus, whatever we eat, we should give thanks to you. And having received from your hands, let us give with equally generous hands to those who are poor, breaking bread and sharing our bread with them. For you have told us that whatever we give to the poor, we give to you. Amen. So, on that note, uh, this is for walk-ins. Okay, that should go around if you got a couple bucks, toss it in. Um, it's almost, let's see, it, yeah, it was just the first of the month, and, uh, or it is, what is today's date? Second. Thank you. Yeah, second. So on Monday, all the walk-ins will be back in full force. They come in the first time of the month, um, and they get lots of good stuff from us. Um, if you consider, you know, being homeless and getting canned food a good thing. So we try to help them out. That's for walk-ins. Uh, do you have everything, Pastor? You got three? All right, perfect. Should have three things. Yeah, you should have three things. You should have um, a thing from Reg Quirk, who's the preceptor at Westfield House. You should have an outline, Practical Mercies. And you should also have a bit from Luther. Uh, it should be three pages, but it should you know, be on front and back. So everybody have all of those? That's all right. Okay, they're coming. Yeah, Martha, you, you've got the Luther thing, so that's good. Um, if you look at your outline, I have no idea what number this is. Partly that's because I haven't been up for about six months. Um, I just like to take a moment and express my feelings on the issue. Uh, I looked back at the last outline I had. It said January 17th. So I figure it's almost the 17th of May. That's four months. Proper restitution would be I take the next four months. And as we see in Zacchaeus, how many times did Zacchaeus give restitution? Four times. So I'm going to teach for the next 16 months. Um, I'll be finishing up around October of 2011. So I hope you enjoy that seat because <laughs> we're going to put your name on it. All right. Ah, okay. Well, here's what we're going to do. We are, you know, Pastor Bruzek took you through the commandments, sort of an examination of yourself. Uh, and those around you. And then he, then he helpfully talked about forgiveness. And last week, actually began to talk about restitution a bit. I'd like to talk about that uh, in more depth today. Now, we don't have a whole lot of time, about a half hour. Today, I'd like to give you just some citations, uh, things from the scriptures, things from the confessions, and then things from every place else. The, the stunning thing to me is always when you, know, you say to people, uh, well, the confessions say this, and when it's something they don't agree with, what is, what's their response usually? Well, it's not scripture. Yeah, right, it's not scripture, and it's the 16th century. And then you say, well, the Bible says this, and they say, well, that's how you read the text. And then you say, well, Luther says this, and say, well, Luther was a sinful man too. So in order to combat the problem, I've given you all three. Um, so there's no way you can disagree with what I say today. Um, I'm kidding. That was recorded. For those of you taking notes, I can give you a recording afterwards. Uh, you can just... Okay, anyway. So I'm going to give you scripture. I'm going to give you confessions. I'm going to give you Luther. I'm going to give you some other people. But we want to push ahead uh, toward restitution. Now, I don't know what, what you know, your thoughts on forgiveness are. I hope you like it. Um, but I think there are often, there are a couple problems with forgiveness or problems that we experience with forgiveness. 
One problem is we're very, very quick oftentimes to push someone to apologize. You ever experience this? You're like, just apologize and we'll be done. If you've got a three-year-old, you know what this is like. Just go say you're sorry to mommy and it's all done. Well, the three-year-old, does the three-year-old always mean that? No. They say they're sorry because they want to watch TV again. Sometimes the same thing happens in the church. We say, just say you're sorry and it'll all be done. Well, what is that, what is that neglect? Pastor Bruzek took you through the Ten Commandments, a full examination. What is that neglect if you just push someone to apologize? Yeah, true repentance. True repentance doesn't just mean you say you're sorry. True repentance means you've actually examined your life, you've seen where it's, it's been faulty, and you actually want to turn around. Repent means simply to turn around. Um, so if you're trying to get out of something, that's not repentance. If you want to say you're sorry to move on, that's not repentance. So partly we push for a very quick, quick apology, and the other fault is sometimes we accept a confessionless confession. Okay? So the person says, well, you know, I'm very sorry that happened, but I did it because you never listened to me. Or I did it because dot, dot, dot. So we push for a quick apology or we accept a confessionless confession. I, I want to at least propose we don't want to do the same thing with restitution. We don't just want to push someone to make restitution until they're ready to make restitution. Why? Because if they do it just because they think it needs to be done, guess what? It's not restitution. That might be the Lord calling. That kind of makes me nervous whenever something goes off like that. I had one time go off like three times during a sermon. I've never been more tempted to sort of stop and say, you know, just put your phone away, buddy. Uh, it is what it is. All right, so look at the thing from Reg Quirk. This should get us going here. Reg Quirk, you know, is the preceptor at Westfield House. Um, very good guy. Um, and they've got, you know, some of the same issues there that we've got here. But I just would prompt you toward, if you look at the right column, the first full paragraph that begins my concern. Okay, I just prompt you, take a look at this. And he actually makes a very nice observation on what it means to say you're sorry and also what it means to say I forgive you. And that'll then push us out toward restitution. My concern, and again, read this whole thing later, but my concern is that these two important words, sorry and forgive, may be losing their meaning as, as modern usage drifts away from what they conveyed, for example, in our confession of sin and holy absolution. In the preparatory service of our favorite setting of the liturgy, for example, as we confess our sins and iniquities, we declare that we are heartily sorry for them. And you know this liturgy, and sincerely repent of them. Now, I wonder how often we say that and we don't actually know what that means. To be heartily sorry. What does it mean to be heartily sorry for your sins? What does that mean? Yeah, it's like from the depths of your existence you realize that you're screwed up. And that you've hurt other people and you've hurt yourselves and you've hurt your neighbor and you've hurt your friends. I am heartily sorry for them. And then the restitution bit, I sincerely repent of them. Surely this is more than a regret that they had happened. It is a matter of each recognizing our responsibility for our own misdeeds. You actually play a part in your own sins. It's not just having a bad day. It's not just, sometimes it is. But your sins come from your being, from your existence. And feeling a shame and a guilt that can only be felt for our own sins. You know, part of the way that you'll understand restitution and repentance, real honestly, is to sin gravely and hurt someone deeply, and then you'll realize how painful sin can be and how necessary restitution is. 
Okay? So I'm not, you know, this isn't like go out and sin gravely. But when you've done that, you know what it's like. Skip down a sentence. The British sign language sign for sorry captures its essence for me. Striking one's heart with a clenched fist conveys the, re- conveys the real pain of my fault, my own fault, my own most grievous fault. So, you know, in sign language, my, where's Judy Mahoney? Is that true? Yeah, this is my, yeah, my fault, my fault, right? And if you ever see a very uh, traditional liturgy done, oftentimes the celebrant, the priest, during the confession of sins will actually do the same thing. I've sinned by my fault, my own fault, my own most grievous fault. Okay? Because it shows from the depths of your heart you recognize that you're not only, you not only committed sin, but you are a sinner. Okay? So we don't want to make the same mistake. We don't want restitution to lose its meaning. We don't just want to say to people, ah, don't worry about it, it's all going to be fine. Full repentance means full restitution. So look at your outline there, the one that says, I have no idea what number this is. I'm going to make note of that every time I can, just so you all know. All right, so restitution. Restoring things to a pre-sin state, what they were before the sin was committed, and restoring things to a quality. Now, this is very important. Think about when either you've sinned against someone or someone has sinned against you. In the act or when the sin is being committed, who has the power? The one committing the sin, the offender. Once the sin has been committed, who has the power? The victim. The victim suddenly has the power. Okay? That's partly why sinning is so easy and restitution is so difficult. Because when you sin, you're in control. But suddenly, once a sin has been committed, and you can sort of, I mean, watch Law and Order SVU and you'll get a picture of this. You know, murder, rape, all those sorts of things. When that's being committed, the person committing the sin has the power. Guess what? When they're on trial, who's in control? The victim. So restitution is about restoring things not only to a pre-sin state, to Eden. But it's about restoring things to equality so that you suddenly don't have power over someone else or someone else doesn't have power over you. So test this. Just test this idea. I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying it's wrong. Test it. Forgiveness makes things right in heaven between you and Jesus. Restitution makes things right on earth. And you know, we're not Gnostics. We're not Gnostics. We're not people who just say it's all about the spiritual world. Okay? It's not just about things being squared up in heaven and who kind of cares how you live on earth. We're also not humanists, where the spiritual means nothing and it's all about me and my relationship and me being a human being and you hurt me as a human being, so we've got to square it up. You're a Christian, which means that the spiritual world, heaven itself, where forgiveness takes place, actually you know, engages and invades the fleshly world. And that should enliven what happens in heaven, should enliven what happens on earth. You can't say, the Lord has forgiven me, but I refuse to make restitution. You cannot say that. Because it means then the forgiveness in heaven actually hasn't stuck. Okay? So test that as we go through. And I want to give you some scripture here, um, you know, setting up for the big finish, which um, is obviously the Zacchaeus story from Luke 19. But these are texts that you've heard lately, especially if you've been coming to the Daily Eucharist. These are the texts appointed by the church uh, all throughout Easter. It's fascinating that the Easter text 
are all about following in Jesus' way and making restitution. Why is that? Because they just nailed the Messiah to the cross. And now that he's come back to life, they need to make wrongs right. And partly the way they make wrongs right is they follow the Messiah who is now living. So look at 1 John 2. Whoever says he abides in him, Christ Jesus, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now, Joe Hansen did a very spectacular job. If you were there at the, uh, at the Saturday information meeting, a week ago Saturday, um, that was the first time, you know, if you were there the Sunday before, you didn't hear Joe speak about reconciliation ministry. But one of his most helpful insights was that reconciliation technically means realignment. So what does it mean to be realigned behind Jesus? It means you see where he's walking. You know, he's walking down the aisle, and you're walking over here. And to be realigned means you come back in behind Jesus. That's what it means to have a head and have a body. You know, in the scriptures, and people often you know, sort of chafe at this, but when Paul says in Ephesians 5, the husband is the head, the wife is the body, and then he says, lo, I tell you a mystery. Mysterion. Lo, I tell you a sacrament. Lo, I tell you a mystery. I am speaking about Christ and the church. That relationship, head to body, is not one of submission and, uh, you know, sort of, I'm going to put my thumb in it. That relationship, first and foremost, comes from military terms. <coughs> If you've ever been in the military, you know the first guy in. Why is he the first guy in? So the people behind him are safe and protected. So when Jesus says, follow in my way, it's not like, ah, you don't know what you're doing. You should come along behind me. It does mean that sometimes. But it also means the world is a miserable, evil, dangerous place. Follow behind me and you won't be hurt. And you saw that in the, uh, in the bulletin, page 17. I just saw it this morning that Eugene Peterson... Christ is the way as well as the truth and life. Now listen to this. When we don't do it his way, we mess up the truth and we miss out on the life. Isn't that brilliant? We mess up on the truth and we miss out on the life. We can't live a life more like Jesus by embracing a way of life less like Jesus. To have the truth and to have the life is to live the way that Jesus has called us to live. So... Uh, Joe Hansen, thank you very much. Realignment means follow me. Part of our going forward, I would propose to you, needs to, needs to be realizing that Jesus knows the best way. And the only way to be safe and to be right and to be honest and to be saved is to follow in behind Christ. That makes sense? Okay, if it doesn't make sense, stop me. Because, I mean, this is difficult stuff. It's stuff we haven't thought about. As you'll see, it's stuff Jesus has thought about and it's stuff Luther has thought about. But we haven't all thought about it. So, John 14, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Which means love, of course, is action. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. You remember last... Uh, was it last week or two weeks ago? The gospel reading was where Jesus, you know, has, has breakfast on the beach, and he says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? And Peter, of course, says, yes, you know I love you. N.T. Wright made a brilliant statement down at Wheaton College. He says, uh, Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Agape, love. And, or, or Jesus says, do you love me? Agape. Peter responds, yes, I love you. Philios, yes, I am your friend. And Jesus says, no, Peter, do you love me? Agape. And he says, yes, Jesus, 
You know I filios. I'm your friend. And then the third time, Jesus, of course, says, are you my friend? Which means he loves you the way that you need to be loved. So if you're not quite ready to follow in behind, he says, are you my friend? But when he says that to Peter, how does he end that text? Do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. And he says, when you were a child, you walked like a child, you clothed yourself, you went off. But when you get older, someone will take you where you don't want to go. And what are they going to do to Peter? Crucify him upside down. Which means, if you love me, the question to Peter, you will follow in my way. You will actually be crucified. And all you have to do is remember the Good Friday text to know love is not an emotion. Love is action. And all you have to do is, you know, well, I was going to be sassy. Let's keep going. I was warned about being sassy. Let's keep going. So, if you love me, you will keep my word. If you love Christ, you'll keep his word. Look at John 15. This is where it gets good. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. Is the pruning painful or comforting? It's painful. It's going to hurt. That it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. I forgive you. I baptize you. Take heed. This is my body. Abide in me and I in you. Isn't that great? Divine participation. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless, you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. That's painful. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Now here's the kicker. This is the part Lutherans often don't want to read. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. I mean, think about, think about your Lutheran upbringing. How often did you ever think that what you do you know, proves to the Father that you are a disciple of his Son? As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. There it is. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. I would just pose the question to you. When Jesus says, prove to be my disciples, to whom are you proving? When he says that, prove to be my disciples, to whom are you proving? Before man? Before your neighbor? Yeah. Who else? Before God. And who else? Before yourself. You prove to all your neighbors that you are a disciple of Christ. This is why, you know, evangelism and mission work, in some sense, is very simple. It's not about going out and asking somebody on the train, Maddie, if you died tonight, where would you go? Is that law or gospel? Law. If you die tonight, where would you go? That's not how you do evangelism. How do you do evangelism? You so prove to be his disciples. And as Jesus says, they will see your good deeds, and they will 
glorify your Father who is in heaven. They will see, yeah, exactly. Yeah, sometimes when people see you, that's not the best thing. So you prove to the Father, you prove to your neighbors, and also, frankly, you prove to yourself. I mean, if you think about, well, you don't have to even raise your hand. How many times have you ever woken up and said, I don't know if the Lord still loves me? I don't even know if I'm a Christian. Guess what? Go out and do some good, and you'll prove to yourself the Father loves you, the Son loves you, and you yourself are a Christian. That's why Jesus always talks about discipleship hand-in-hand with doing. Do you have a question, Jan? thought you had your hand raised. Okay. Now, here's the good one. Luke 19. He entered Jericho, Jesus, and was passing through. And there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not, because he was of small stature. So, Nehemiah, as everybody likes to joke, is not the shortest guy in the Bible. Zacchaeus is. Thanks for the courtesy laugh. There's a special place in heaven who have courtesy, for those who have courtesy laughs. Because my life depends on it. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. You know, wouldn't it be great if Jesus just stopped by and said, hey, I hope the house is tidy because I'm staying at your place. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Why is he a sinner? He's a tax collector, and he makes lots of cash. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. That's good. But here's the key. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, if I have sinned, I restore it fourfold. That is restitution. If I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And what does Jesus say? Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So, as you test your restitution theory, that it's making things right on earth, you also need to test this. Is just squaring it up enough? No. At least it doesn't appear to be from Luke 19. So if you sinned against someone publicly, and that's usually when restitution is necessary. I mean, if you have an ill thought, there's not much you can do about that. But if you sinned against someone publicly, not only do you need to go back and undo the sin, but you might even need to go back and say nice things about that person publicly for the next two or three years. That's what Zacchaeus does. If I've taken anything from anyone, I will restore it fourfold. Yes? Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, in some sense that's right. Did you all hear his comment? He basically said, you know, maybe you, you took 10 bucks from him and for that time he was without the $10, and there was lots of pain, and frankly, he didn't have other money lying around, so you pay him back, plus the interest for the time it was gone. Great. So if you sinned against someone publicly, you pay him back with good deeds, 
uh, as interest for the time that you know they were left in this in this great sin. Okay? Because you know how it happens. If you say something, if I say something about Maddie publicly that's untrue, until I go back and make that wrong right, what's going to happen? People are going to think Maddie is a bad person. But guess what? Here's the sad thing. Even if I go back and write you all an email and say, what I said about Maddie wasn't true, in the back of your mind, you're all going to doubt. So just squaring it up doesn't actually leave Maddie in a better spot than she was before. You square it up, and you do everything you can to build and strengthen and uphold now Maddie's relationship. This is just, I mean, here's the thing. This is just the Christian way. And as you'll see, um, as we go into, I mean, gosh, there's so much to give you. Can I have next week, or are you planning to teach again? <laughs> Last 12 minutes? I can't tell you how many times you've said to me, we're going to go half. I'll go the first 25, you go the last 10. I don't ever remember, remember standing up about this time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but as you'll see, um, well, there's just great stuff from Luther, and we'll look at that in just a minute. The Lord answers prayers. <laughs> so amen, right. So restitution, just test this along the way. And, and let me just tell you where we're going, you know, why, we're, why we have this long pause here. Um, I want to give you some of these texts this week as the foundation. Next week, if we don't get through them all, I'll give you some more. And then I actually want to go into practical, like, I mean, the, the course is called Practical Mercies. So what are some practical things to get you through restitution? This should be like a skills course. If you've sinned against someone or if you've been sinned against, how do you make restitution? How do you receive restitution? I don't need real-life examples unless you want to give them. We all know what's happened. Um, so, you know, let's just figure out how to go forward, practically speaking. Because my guess is, while you all agree restitution is important, very few of you probably know exactly what it should look like. That makes sense? You all know it's important. No, I mean, if you think restitution is not important, all you have to do is read the first four verses I've just given you. And sadly, what Jesus says is, if there are no good works that follow sin... You're not a Christian. That's the reality. And we'll, get it, we'll read a bit from Luther, and I'll just tip you off. Luther says, good works, guess what he says? Good works are a sacrament. 1532, which for those of you who love Luther, that's almost inspired and inerrant. Okay? And I'm going to give you all this. But if you don't believe it's important, we got a different issue. If you believe it's important, which I think you all do, it's all about practically now going forward. I want you to help me. And I want to be able to help you, and we got to work together to see how we move forward now. This is uncharted territory. I just talked to someone yesterday. We had a little catechumenate reunion, and the person said, we're so happy we joined. This is so great. You know, and he said, I'll be honest. We came in at a very rough time, and everybody in the new member class knew what was going on. And frankly, people out in the community knew what was going on. Period. We came anyways. Great. But it's funny because what people know about us out in the community, and even in this community, is what? What would people know about us out in the community right now? Whatever it is, it's not good. And it's very sad. People have said the school's going to close, and you know those people don't get along, and they're losing members, and pick your thing. Wouldn't it be great if in the next year we were known not by the sins we had committed, but by the restitution we've made? If pe yeah, amen. If people said, that's a community where, you know what, people goofed up and we had some big sins, but they've all made restitution, and they're going forward. That's a place where you can go and you can belong, where you can actually be loved when love is action and not emotion. 
Okay? We, that's where we got to go. Now, we got three minutes left. So we're not going to get there today. But look at the confessions now. Again, this is all Lutheran stuff. Bible and confessions. That what, that's what grounds you. This ran in the bulletin a couple weeks back, so it shouldn't be unfamiliar. This is the essential proclamation of the gospel. Okay? This is very true. The essential proclamation of the gospel, that we obtain forgiveness of sins by faith because of Christ and not by our works. That's solid Lutheran stuff. It's all about Christ. He makes the first move, he makes the middle move, and he makes the final move. He does the verb, you receive the gift. Our opponents, opponents at the time of the Reformation, who knows if they're still opponents today, try to silence this proclamation of the gospel by twisting those passages which teach us about the law or works. It is true that in teaching penitence, that's, you know, being sorry, repentance, works are required. It is true that in teaching penitence, works are required, since a new life is certainly required. You're not dead, you're alive. But here our opponents maliciously maintain that by such works we merit forgiveness of sins or justification. The great word here is, Nevertheless, we're not going to fight that battle. Nevertheless, Christ frequently connects the promise of forgiveness of sins with good works. He does not mean that good works are a propitiation, for they follow reconciliation. But he does this for two reasons. One is that good fruits ought to follow of necessity. And so he warns that penitence is hypocritical and false if they do not follow. We'll read a bit from Luther later, but what Luther says is, if you see someone who's not living the Christian life, who's not doing good works, who's not making restitution, at best you can say, we don't know if they're a Christian. At worst you say, they're not a Christian. I mean, this is the thing. This is the only way the world has to know who you are and what's been done to you by Christ. And frankly, it's the only way we as a community know what's been done to you and who you are. The other reason is that we need external signs of this exceedingly great promise, since a terrified conscience needs manifold consolations. If you're terrified about the sins that have been done to you or about the sins you've done, here's my advice. Make restitution. In the very act of doing it, your, comfort will be, your conscience will be comforted. Baptism and the Lord's Supper, for example, are signs that constantly admonish, cheer, and confirm terrified minds to believe more firmly that their sins are forgiven. This same promise is written and pictured in good works, which thus urge us to believe more firmly. Those who fail to do good do not arouse themselves to believe, but despise these promises. But the faithful, the faithful embrace them and are glad to have such signs and testimonies of this great promise. Hence they exercise themselves in these signs and testimonies. Now there are a couple big words here, but I'll explain them to you. Just as the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, does not justify, does not make you right with God, ex opera operato, that means just by doing it. You actually have to have faith. Okay, you actually have to have faith. Faith is granted at baptism. But if a pagan walks in off the street, they're not forgiven just by going up to the Eucharist. It doesn't work ex opera operato. That simply means the work does the work. Just as the Lord's Supper does not justify ex opera operato without faith, so almsgiving, 
does not justify ex opera operato without faith. Now here's the key. What's the contrary point? If you do have faith, almsgiving justifies. It makes you right with God. Isn't that brilliant? I mean, these are the confessions. So you can, you can say, I disagree, I don't agree. As Lutherans, when we bring in as new members, we say, do you promise to swear your life on this? We'll have to ask the confirmants today. Do you promise to swear your life on this? When I was ordained, I went face down and said, I'll swear my life on this. This is what it says. A life of good works is a life that follows faith and forgiveness. And by living a life of good works, you not only show the Father that you're part of the Son, you show the world that you're part of the Son. Okay? This has all sorts of implications. Not just for restitution, but for evangelism, for community. I mean, for everything. This is the Eucharistic life. 1102. Do you have any questions? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Is it? Is that your question? Yeah. Uh, here's the thing. The question is, he's got a friend who's been baptized, who doesn't attend church, um, and doesn't, uh, you know, well, doesn't attend church, but does live a very good life, good works. Is that recognized by the Lord? Um, at its, you know, sort of lowest common denominator, bare minimum, yeah, it is because that person has been baptized. However, um, and you'll read this next week, the greatest good work, is to go to the Eucharist. This is from Luther. The greatest good work is to go to the divine service. So if you're not attaching yourself to the place where the Lord has promised to be present, um, all we know about you is that you've been walking away from that. So whether or not the Lord looks at that person and says, yeah, those are good works, you know, that's where it becomes a little sticky. He needs to be at the Eucharist. Because good, good works then flow from that life. And here's what Luther would also say. There are lots of pagans who do good works. I mean, you know this. You met a lot of, I mean, some, some of the people who do the greatest things in the world are unbelievers. Those are very good, civil, helpful works. They do good for society. But they're not the ones that the Lord says, that's my child. Okay? Dan or Donna, who had? You're in line. Okay, all right. Go ahead, Donna, Dan, and then I'll go one more back here, and then we probably need to wrap up. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, would you... Yeah. As you read the text, what you realize is, and this is what you can't see, that any good works you do, none of them are ever done apart from Christ. So what you've just spotted here is a very helpful thing, which is, yeah, Zacchaeus does it fourfold, that's restitution, and yet, why does he do it? Because Jesus came into his house. He gave himself. Yeah, exactly. He gave him the faith to do what needed to be done. So it's all Jesus. But Jesus, uh, Jesus always works by means. He's always been a Lutheran. Um, so, uh, so he works by people, too. Yeah, Dan. Okay, yeah. I actually don't think they're that good. But... Uh, <laughs> Yes. We can do that, certainly. Um, 
if you, ha I mean, I know we've got it. I'm not sure which one you're talking about. The one that sort of leads you through the rights of forgiving each other and moving forward. We can easily do that. Yeah. Anything else? Uh, let me go back here to Holly, and then I'll go to Dan, okay? That's all right. Holly, did you have a question? You're right. Whether or not they know that is a different thing. But you're right. The unbaptized, their will is turned in upon themselves. So they themselves are their own God. Uh, the baptized, the will is turned outward. It's turned to God and it's turned to your neighbor. So you're right. They do very nice things. Um, whether or not they know they're doing it for their own salvation, who knows? But either way, their will is, is sort of bound up in that, which is unhelpful. Dan, last word? No, they go hand in hand. Okay, but the, the, the person that is doing the work, uh, Jesus says, "Come and be a part of me to do nothing." Yeah. How does that reconcile your work? Yeah, partly it's our understanding of what a good work is. A good work, a true good work, is only a forgiven work. So even your best good works need to be forgiven before they're actually good. And the reason they're good is because they're good in the eyes of the Father. So we confuse these things. We think if you help an old lady across the street. That's a good work. It very well could be. Uh, but in the church, in the eyes of the Father, the only good works are forgiven works. Yeah. You all okay? All right, let's pray. We'll come back next week. We'll wrestle out back to see who's going to teach. Okay? Your time is that. That'll be at uh, 10, 12. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> all right, here we go. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven... Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.